You're listening to an encore edition of Studio Tulsa recorded earlier this year. Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and writer Timothy Egan has had a knack for writing about illuminating episodes in our history. At a time when fires were ravishing the forests of the American West, he wrote of similar episodes in the very early 20th century in The Big Burn that led to wholesale conservation efforts. He recounted the history of the Dust Bowl in his National Book Award-winning book, The Worst Hard Time. And today, at a time when intolerance and extremism is on the rise, he recounts a similar event exactly 100 years previously, when the hatred and the extremism of the Ku Klux Klan was wrapped in the flag of Americanism and nearly subsumed the majority of America. In the 1920s, Klan-affiliated men ran legislatures, governorships, and local communities throughout the Midwest, the South, and the Pacific Northwest. Egan's latest book is titled A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them, which tells the story of the Midwestern Klan, who was under the leadership of a charismatic alcoholic charlatan named D.C. Stevenson. In his home state of Indiana, the Klan was endorsed in church pulpits, at town picnics, and local celebrations. The Klan moved from the shadows to the forefront of Indiana politics. Judges, prosecutors, law enforcement, legislators, senators, and even the governor all claimed membership. It's a fascinating look at a history many have forgotten. Timothy Egan, uh, welcome back to Studio Tulsa. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Rich. It's great to be back with you again and back speaking to people in Oklahoma, where I spent a lot of time working on my book about the Dust Bowl, The Worst Hard Time. Yes, of course. And there's a little bit of Oklahoma in this new book. Uh, but I have to tell you, there's, it's an important story to retell today. Certainly, they're not exact parallels today, but some of this story seems very familiar. And you tell of a force of American politics that really infected the body politic in a way that held the levers of power. Give us a sense of how dominant the Ku Klux Klan, not the Southern Klan that most people think right. about, but this Midwestern variety, how dominant was it in the 1920s in American politics? Yeah, the book is called A Fever in the Heartland because the heartland is where the Klan really took hold in the 1920s. We think of it, at least if people think about it at all, they think of it as a as a Southern institution that rose during the post-Civil War era. That certainly did happen. The Klan got its start in the South of the old Confederacy, and it was a terror group that you know burned churches and fire-branded individuals they didn't like and drove people out of town and had lynchings. And President Grant destroyed them in 1872. Fifty years later, they rise again. They come out of the mists of time. And where do they rise? Primarily in the northern states. Now, they were certainly active in Oklahoma and active in Tulsa. And they were certainly active in Texas, which gave us, unfortunately, the first absolute sworn Klansman who was also a United States senator, that being Senator Mayfield. But truly, and this is the story of my book, their headquarters was in the heartland. So in the state of Indiana in the 1920s, one out of every three white members was a sworn member of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. They controlled the governorship. They controlled the state legislature. The mayor of Indianapolis was Klan. And it was run 
The entire operation was run by this monstrous man named D.C. Stevenson. So one of the first things that attracted me to this story, and again, I'm always attracted to stories that are largely untold, was that this is largely untold, that the Klan, at the peak of its power, when it had six million members and four governors, governor of Colorado was a Klansman, governor of Oregon, Klan supported, governor of Indiana, Klansman. At the peak of their power, it wasn't the stereotypical old South, it was the North. In fact, you uh, write of an incident, uh, I think it's in 1925, where the Klan go to Washington and march down the streets of Washington. This wasn't the Southern Klan, this was the Midwest Klan. So there's a picture in the book of this march, and I had a piece in the Washington Post the other day that talked about this. That goes to the uh, nature of the Klan in the 20s, that they were called the Invisible Empire, but they were anything but invisible. They marched down the streets of Washington, D.C. in both 1925 and 1926. Uh, in 25, there's up to 50,000 members of the Klan. The Washington Post called it one of the largest demonstrations this city has ever seen. And they're just proudly parading and espousing their hatred of blacks and Catholics, which they hated, Jews, immigrants, and certain women who they considered too promiscuous. Uh, that was their range of hatreds. But yeah, and also in 1925, they had an office six blocks from the White House with a staff of 60. I mean, they were an active special interest group that was a dominant player in the 1924 political conventions. But certainly in Indiana, you almost had the complete uh, levers of power controlled by the Klan during the mid-20s. Well, don't take my word for it. But uh, people in Indiana, newspaper men and others, called the state a Klan Republic. You know, there was huge speeches and rallies. There was a banner headline in one of the Indianapolis papers saying, don't go there. This is our last chance to save us from a Klan Republic because they voted the Klan slate up and down. Clean, totally Ku Klux Klan slate. So, yeah, they, they ran everything. So there are 92 counties in the state of Indiana, all but two of them had a Klan chapter. I mentioned the one in three, that is 300,000 Hoosiers who were Klansmen. So it was it was a state completely given over to the Invisible Empire. One of the things I really like about this book is you do tell the stories of resistance. You talk about newspaper reporters and editors who really challenged the Klan head on at their detriment, uh, really and truly. But you also tell a wonderful story about perhaps the Klan going one step too far in Indiana when they decided to go to South Bend. <laughs> and we, uh, we, um, yeah, that's a, and when we that's think a great story. of the University of Notre Dame, we think of their teams, the Fighting Irish. And that's not just a rah-rah school spirit <laughs> thing. It really was. Tell us this story. This is great. Yeah, that's a great story. Thanks for bringing that up. So the Klan had a lot of people did resist them. I don't want to paint a portrait of everyone just caving in. No, a lot of people resisted him. And chief among the resistors in the north of Indiana were Catholics. And chief among the Catholics was the iconic Catholic institution in the United States, that being the Golden Dome of the University of Notre Dame. Well, the Klan hated Notre Dame. They threatened to bomb the Golden Dome. They wrote regularly in their newspaper about the University of Notre Dame being this nest of people who were loyal to the Pope and not to the president. So they, in a May day in 1924, the Klan staged this huge rally, and they had done this all over the Midwest with almost no resistance. 
a huge rally in South Bend, Indiana. And what happened was the students confronted them. They decided they'd had enough of being called un-American. They'd had enough of being called mackerel snappers and foreigners. And they were largely Irish kids, Irish American kids, working class kids at this all boy Catholic school along the St. Joe River. And they, <laughs> this is kind of funny because when they went against the Klan and they routed them, the Klan had to run up into their headquarters and hide. The students were throwing potatoes at them. So, you know, this image of these Irish American kids throwing spuds at Klansmen was caught a lot of people. And one of the people throwing the potatoes supposedly was Notre Dame's star quarterback. But the next day in the Chicago, one of the Chicago newspapers, it said, uh, students route Klan. And it was like they're talking about a score 24 to nothing. <laughs> and it gave rise to the nickname that Notre Dame still has, of course, which is the Fighting Irish. Well, that, that was a humorous aside in what is otherwise a very serious book. And and you tell the story of the Klan, and the man that ran the Klan was a man who had pretensions of being Napoleon, uh, D.C. Stevenson. He comes out of Texas. He, he lived in southern Oklahoma at, right. at, at his beginnings, and he was just the epitome of a con man, grifter, but he had the ability to mesmerize people and get people to follow him. Tell us a little about D.C. Stevenson and how he was able to amass so much power. He's a classic American character. And we have these people in our politics and we have these people in our literature. We have these people in our musicals. Don't forget uh, Music Man. Uh, right. We got trouble right here in River City, the grifter who rose into town. And we had him in the Klan. And yeah, Stevenson was, as he said, I'm just a nobody from nowhere who did bounce around from one small town in Oklahoma after the other. He married a woman, and as soon as she got pregnant, he deserted her and took up with another woman in another town and told everybody he was a single man. When his wife finally caught up with him, he said, don't tell her anyone we're married. <laughs> and he ditched the daughter and that wife, and they didn't see each other for 11 years. He shows up in Indiana and in four short years, four short years, goes from a drifter with no, no name and no background to the man who was, had such complete control over this state that he said, I am the law. And he proved it by the awful things that he did. So he builds the Klan in Indiana and ultimately throughout the Midwest, he takes over 21 states in the North. The Klan empire, the center of the, their power is all under his domain starting out in the fraternal clubs. So, you know, it's the golden age of these Elks clubs and Oddfellows and Redmen, and they're largely harmless, but he borrows their rituals and he borrows some of their, you know, secret rites. And he sees that, you know, there's a real attraction in belonging and being a brother in something. So he, he applies some of the, the things he learned about their fraternal organizations to his clan in the Midwest. And then of course, it's still based on grievances and resentments because he they, they despise blacks and they despise Catholics and despise Jews and immigrants. And they despise, you know, women who go to these speakeasies and drink and have fun at night. So he infiltrates the fraternal clubs and he also pays off a lot of evangelical ministers. He bribes them and he pays them a pretty large amount in the day. 50 bucks was equal to, you know, a week's worth of wages to preach the word of hate along with the word of God. So that 
gives his clan a somewhat sanctified gloss. You know, they're not um, a bunch of terrorists. Well, they're blessed by the pulpit. So it was one of the many ways. You know, he famously said, I did not sell the clan on hatred. I sold the clan on Americanisms. So his genius, if you can call it that, was to apply the superficial things that bind a lot of Americans together to what is truthfully the nation's oldest domestic terror group. And in Indiana, at least, there's almost this degree of a multi-level marketing thing going on because, you know, all of a sudden you have this fraternal order nature of the Klan in which, hey, support Klan-owned businesses, you know, uh, social gatherings besides burning crosses and, and the like. And there was almost, and of course, dues flowed upwards. And, you know, a yeah. portion of every uh, member's dues went to D.C. Stevenson. So it was a very profitable uh, organization. Well, I th- yeah, and a great point. I think that's, in truth, what attracted Stevenson to it. He you know, didn't really have any core convictions. He had grievances, but, you know, he was a liar and a sociopath and a guy who could get away with saying anything, which he did. He had no shame, no bottom. But he ultimately just wanted to make money. And he he himself called these people, millions of people, millions who joined the Klan, a bunch of suckers and dupes. And, you know, they would marvel at how they could go into a church, bribe a minister, and within a week have, you know, most of the people in the church had signed up to join the Klan. And it was a marketing scheme. You're absolutely right. This drifter grifter becomes a multimillionaire. He's worth in modern dollars 28 million bucks at the peak of his power. That's in four short years. He makes money on all levels. And you're right. They would post these stickers in the stores that said TWK, trade with Klan. And it was a way to boycott Jewish-owned retailers and a way to indicate that you know the Ford dealer would advertise. This is the exact word. He'd say, we serve, we sell cars only to 100% Americans. Well, a 100% American was somebody who belonged to one race and one religion. But yeah, you, uh, that's brilliant. You absolutely put your finger on it. At its core, it was a money-making machine. Stevenson had his own private plane with the letters KKK on the bottom, and he used it to drop into Kokomo, Indiana, at the height of the Klan's power when they had a rally of 200,000 people. He had a 98-foot yacht on the Great Lakes, and he entertained senators and governors and captains of industry on this 98-foot yacht. He had a huge mansion. I visited it, still huge, in the most desirable suburb. He was not some hick, some rube, some you know thug living under a bridge. He was a very powerful man. So the Klan was a huge money-making scheme. And you know, you've heard the old line, I think it's attributed to P.T. Barnum. Nobody ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American people. <laughs> I mean, that could have been one of his mottos. My guest today is Timothy Egan. He's the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and National Book Award-winning uh, nonfiction writer. His latest book is titled A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them. Uh, it's published by Viking. And in the book, you know, uh, he recruited a, a famous temperance uh, figure. And, and I was really interested. He comes out of the Anti-Saloon League, which... Uh, I think uh, you quote Clarence Darrow saying this was the breeding ground for the Klan, the Anti-Saloon League, the 
period when prohibition first began. And uh, out of that comes a women's auxiliary. Uh, and there's also even a kitty corps, <laughs> which is just just sort of blows my mind. This really was a, a, an organization that had grown into every, you know, police departments were almost always Klan run, right? Yeah. And, and uh, the interesting thing on um, the temperance stuff was, I mean, I, I initially didn't understand this because not just Clarence Darrell, but a lot of historians have said that the um, Anti-Saloon League, which was the powerful lobby that brought us prohibition, was the father of the Ku Klux Klan. And their their interests were the same. Now, Stevenson himself, of course, was a raging alcoholic. Yes. And the founder of the Klan in 1915, William Simmons, was a raging alcoholic. And Stevenson was a bootlegger who had the finest liquor you could get in a time when alcohol was outlawed in every square foot of America. What was their political interest? Why would the Klan be so anti-alcohol? Well, they saw immigrants and alcohol as one and the same. And Irish Americans had learned their citizenship and some of their politics in saloons and pubs. They thought, oh, if we shut down the saloons and the pubs, we can shut down the launching place, the, the home of Irish American and ultimately Catholic politics. Same thing with um, Southern Italians who would were fermenting wine in their basements and you know, the social rituals were built around wine and dinner. And so they thought if we could bust up the central thing at the core of, of immigrant society, maybe we can, we can make immigrant society less powerful. So yeah, that was a, that was fascinating to me. And then extending it to the family, that mm -hmm. was a deliberate scheme. This was not going to be for men. It was going to be for women as well. And there were many I have to say, suffragettes, women who were advocating for giving women the vote, which they got in 1920, um, who were militant Klan's women. And they thought, wow, if we bring all these women into our organization, we could advance white supremacy by leaps and bounds by having this many new votes as well. So, And then they extended it, as you mentioned, to the family. And so they founded an organization called the Ku Klux Kitties. A horrible thing. But I, I read in the Klan newspaper, a, a parent who wrote in and said, thank God for the Ku Klux Kitties. Now my little boy has a place to can go to and learn about real Americans. You know, he was only 10 or something. And these kids would don their little robes and hoods, uh, little kids, and go to these <laughs> den meetings. And there they would learn how to hate their fellow Americans. So that he really got this thing entrenched. He just wove it into the fabric of America. He fully expected to be named a senator at some point and probably president at some point. But I tell you, the other thing that's that's just so interesting about this man is this sheer hypocrisy. You mentioned that there was a temperance sort of current within the Klan, but he was a raging alcoholic. It, it espoused family values. And here he is. He is a, a serial, violent, misogynistic man who attacked numerous women and uh, was caught by police on at least one or two occasions and used his clan connections to, to be let off the hook. Never brought to justice because not just that there were a lot of clan cops, sad to say, there were clan judges and clan prosecutors, um, but Stevenson himself got so hubristic, and I use that word 
uh, lightly because he said, I am the law. He just got so used to his indiscretions, and that's actually too weak of a word. He got so used to his violent sexual assaults and never being held to account that he thought nothing could ever stop him. You know, he started out as a lot of con men do, just lying about himself. He'd roll into town, he'd say, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm a member of the bar. In fact, he never completed eighth grade. He said, people say, where are you from? He goes, well, I'm from an old South Bend family. We made our money in oil, you know, <laughs> or another time he said, we made our money in banking. Oh, so you'd, you'd read these newspaper profiles of him. They said, the distinguished Mr. Stevenson, who comes from a long line of family wealth and, <laughs> you know, is a member of the, in, in the pre-internet age, you couldn't check this stuff. Uh, now you could just Google him and find out he's a fraud. But if you're willing to tell the big lie, and tell it with conviction, you could get away with a lot of stuff. You could then, and you can now. Yeah. Well, uh, enter Madge Oberholzer, who is a, a reformist woman who's uh, wanting to get a bill passed that would offer child nutrition. She's told that, hey, if you want to get this passed, you got to talk to D.C. Stevenson because he holds all the lever levers of power in Indiana. And... D.C. Stevenson, as he did with any young woman that seemed to enter his orbit, is immediately attracted to her and determined to dominate her, I guess. That's probably the best way when you talk about all of these sorts of uh, incidents in his life. He basically kidnaps her, tries to rape her, uh, do violence on her, and... Well, why don't you pick up the story? Tell us a little about this yeah. this incident. So if this were fiction and I was a novelist, <laughs> I would bring these two characters together pretty much the way they were brought together in real life, the way you just described it. It's two people's fate meeting and crossing that helps to shape the United States of America in the 1920s. Madge, as you mentioned, is a woman of her age. She wears her hair in a short bob. She's 28 years old. She likes going out at night. She has several boyfriends. She doesn't feel like she has to get married. She drives herself across the country at one point, a very daring thing for a young woman of the 20s to do. But she lives at home with her parents, and she has a job that she likes, a state job, but it's on the, it's on the block. So the only way to save her way to make a living is to go to this guy, D.C. Stevenson, the Grand Dragon who's running the state. And... She thinks she can control the play. She goes, man, it's a feisty woman. She thinks, I, you know, I got this. I'm not worried about this guy. I've seen plenty of con men in my time. So, you know, he starts to date her, takes her out to dinner a couple of times. And she's very cautious because he's kind of creepy. I mean, he's got all these armed guards around him. He rattles his fingers on the desk. He's biting his fingernails. He, when he hears a car backfire, he ducks under the desk like someone's shooting him. And he always compares himself constantly to Napoleon, saying, you know, he and Napoleon are one of the same. He throws these parties at his house that his top aide said could have shamed Nero. Mm. I mean, wild, debauched parties with naked women popping out of cakes. This is the man who's professing virtue, of course. So their fates do cross. And Madge ultimately is kidnapped by Stevenson and raped and he bites her as well. He's a cannibal. Mm -hmm. His sexual attacks, they just get more awful as time goes on and he's not arrested and not held to account. So she becomes, this victim of D.C. Stevenson was the 
he picked the wrong woman finally because her words in a court of law are what ultimately bring down him and the powerful, powerful clan of the 1920s. Yeah. How important was this court case, uh, which uh, ended in his conviction, how important was it in the sort of decline of the Klan? They called this the trial of the century in Indiana. They still do call it the trial of the century, though it's largely unknown. It was unknown to me, and I consider myself you know, fairly literate in American history. It was covered by every newspaper that New York Times, Washington Post, every Indian. It was daily front page coverage every day. Radios covered it. The Scopes Monkey Trial, the evolution trial, had just happened in the same year. So this was the this was the other big trial. And on the surface, it was a trial of D.C. Stevenson for rape, kidnapping, and murder. But beneath the surface and in the court of law, it was an exposing of the true heart of the Ku Klux Klan. So after many days of testimony, including the incredible words of Madge Overholzer, the world came to see what the Ku Klux Klan was all about through the exposure of their grand dragon, the most powerful man who ever walked the streets of Klandom, that he was, a, he was not a man of virtue, that he was a monster, that he was not a man of purity, he was a rapist, that he was not a man of who told the truth. He told 12 lies before he got out of bed. That his group was not some harmless little ritualized band of brothers, you know, playing harmless games with their silly rituals and their secret codes and their secret handshake in the basement, but was a terror group. That they regularly firebombed people's houses that they didn't like, that they burned crosses of intimidation across the land, that they did... A, incredibly awful things, violent things. And this was able to come out, as a lot of our things do in society, in a court of law. Finally, through sworn testimony, the rest of America saw what Madge Overholzer saw, which was the face of a monster. Yeah. Now, as you read this book, one immediately thinks of some particular parallels to today and one, I mean, you have to just let's be frank, you know, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, when, as you're reading about D.C. Stevenson, how present was that in your mind as you're learning this story and putting this story to print? I consider myself a fair person. I consider myself a accurate journalist and writer of nonfiction. And I have a 30 page source list because the story is so hard to believe. And I say at the start of this book, the following story is true. It's all from court testimony. It's from documents, it's from diaries and newspaper entries. But to your point, you can't look at the story and not think of the parallels to today and a certain former president. Not that he's a Klansman, not that he's a murderer. I'm not going to say any of that. But I'll say this. If you're willing to lie regularly and tell a big lie, and if there's no bottom to your shame, if you can shame and intimidate in a way that most of us would be embarrassed to do, I mean, Mark Twain famously said, human beings are the only creatures that blush or have reason to blush. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that quote. If, if Most of us will blush or have shame, but if you're without shame, and they called D.C. Stevenson the most talented sociopath north of the Ohio River. If you're willing to have no shame, if you're willing to tell the big lie, my lesson in this history is you can get away with a lot. 
name of the book is A Fever in the Heartland. Timothy Egan, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us again. Okay, take care. Have a good day. Writer Timothy Egan speaking with us here on Studio Tulsa. His latest book is titled A Fever in the Heartland, the Ku Klux Klan's plot to take over America and the woman who stopped them. It's published by Viking. That's Studio Tulsa for today. Our program is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests and commentators are not necessarily the views of KWGS or its licensee, the University of Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Thanks for listening.